Hey, Ray, how are you? Blog Talk hey. Radio. I'll talk to you in about a minute and a half. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to NGSBA's Blog Talk program, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings state leaders to you, and I hope that you feel free to join in the conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I will be your host this morning. Before I get started, however, I'd like to have Barbara tell you about how to participate in the program. Barbara, I don't hear you. Okay, uh, uh, Barbara got disconnected. When you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, you just press 1. That will indicate on our switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. If I'll get your name and your question or topic. Also, if, if you are on the phone line, I will ask that you turn down the volume on your computer and only listen to the phone since there will be a slight delay and it's a bit confusing. If you're just listening on your computer, we do have a chat room feature that you can log on to. We will be monitoring the chat room, and we'll pass on some of the comments or questions on to our speaker. To log on to the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. Um, this past legislative session, uh, we passed what I thought was, which I think most people would say is landmark legislation, the tenure reform bill, uh, something that... I've been with the New Jersey School Board Association 15 years. I didn't think I'd see it anytime soon, uh, but it was passed in bipartisan, bipartisan fashion. Uh, Governor Christie then signed the bill. In the legislative process, uh, there's two parties, uh, the, obviously the Democrats and Republicans, and for Governor Christie to get a lot of his legislation passed, um, he needs both parties to support, and he needs to, his Republican Party to be supporting him. Uh, with us today is Assemblyman John Bramnick, who is the Assembly Minority Leader uh, in the, the Assembly. Uh, welcome, Assemblyman Bramnick. Ray, thanks for having me on your show. It's great to have you. Um, well, let's, let's get into – well, how long have you been in the legislature? And tell us uh, what your district is like. Sure. I've been in the legislature almost 10 years, and I represent three counties now. Uh, parts of Union, parts of Morris, and parts of Somerset counties. Um, as the leader of the Republicans in the in the Assembly, you have to deal with both, I guess, uh, Assemblywoman Speaker Oliver and also the Governor's office. How is your relation? I, mean, I assume your relationship with uh, Governor Christie is very good, uh, but uh, do you have differences of opinion with the Governor's office or your? I have differences of opinion with everybody. It's just a question <laughs> of degree. I have differences of opinion with my wife, my kids, Governor Christie, Sheila Oliver. Uh, bottom line is, uh, at least in terms of political issues or issues involving public policy, none of them are personal. So the personal relationship is really good. Uh, the There are issues we disagree on, but I've never quite understand uh, understood why people are mad. If I disagree whether we lower taxes or raise taxes or do a tenure bill, why is that personal? And that's what I think is missing in the political dialogue today. So I get along very well with Sheila Oliver and actually most people in the state house. And, I, and I've always said that. And Governor Chris, I get along very well. And, you know, if I disagree with him, I don't do a public disagreement. I would you know, I'd meet with him or meet with his staff and I discuss the issue and, you know, we try to come to a resolution. And in your position, you try to uh, bring the opinions of your party's caucus to both uh, 
Speaker Oliver and also the governor? Of course. And, you know, when you have 32 members in your caucus, and we have 32 pretty effective and smart people, uh, a lot of opinions. And But we try to work together, and that's why we've been able, in conjunction with the governor and his leadership, we've been able to get some things done. And if everyone just held on to their position and no one budged, you'd get nothing done. I think Governor Christie has said that on a national stage. Yes, because I guess the major uh, legislative uh, reform, I would say, the pension benefit uh, and, uh, and also the tenure reform, those were – both parties were uh, active in those changes. Uh, not only active, but it's risk-taking by members of the legislature, and uh, you've seen the process, and – uh, historically, no one wants to take any risks, so by Governor Christie getting ahead of the issue and making sure that the legislature moved forward, and, and with Democrats and Republicans, I mean, this is historic in New Jersey. It's probably historic nationally in the environment that we now live in. Uh, let's get to the, some of the legislation that you've uh, we were talking about. Tenure reform. I said it in my opening. I, I actually, uh, I've been with the association 15 years, and I never really thought uh, this would pass, or at least pass this soon. Uh, was this a signal that was this done because of the governor's leadership, or was it just a coalition of both parties working together? Well, it's a combination, but I have to give uh, the governor uh, a tremendous uh, portion of the success. And the reason is, is because you still need the person on top to keep the process moving. Uh, because if you have 120 legislators with 120 opinions, you need a leader. Now, it's not taking anything away from uh, Senator Ruiz or or uh, the Senate President or anyone else, but you still you know you still need a leader. And you know, he, he obviously, obviously, I mean, we didn't talk much about teacher tenure during the last 10 years, so uh, something changed. And uh, I say the most significant change was the governor in conjunction with legis a change in legislative leadership on the Democratic side. Uh, well, let's talk specifically about the tenure reform bill. Why do we uh, – and now New Jersey School Board Association uh, has supported this bill and has been a long proponent of tenure reform. Uh, from your perspective, why do we need tenure reform? Well, I don't think it's real complicated. Uh, you know, we have bad teachers, bad doctors, bad lawyers uh, – and historically, the number of teachers that actually lost tenure uh, were less than, I think, 20. And I think this is correct, though there's how many thousands of teachers. So obviously, the process was so cumbersome that it was almost impossible to get rid of teachers. I think the exact number was 17 in the past decade due to job performance, you know, poor performance. Now, that defies common sense. So if we want to change a system and we want to get bad teachers out, there has to be some opportunity to get bad teachers out. This is nothing – look, I remember the names of every one of my teachers in elementary school, and I had a great experience growing up in Plainfield. Uh, I don't remember having bad teachers, but there are bad teachers, and therefore we need a system that works to get them out. I mean, it's, I, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Um, in the passage of this bill, there was one uh, part that was – we talked about compromise before, uh, last in, first out. That was one of the compromises that the governor gave up to get the support for the bill. Uh, where do you see – do you see that being discussed in the upcoming legislative session? Probably not. I mean, once you get a bill like this and you get some compromise, it's 
unusual that they go back so quickly to the same issue and then try to make one minor, I shouldn't matter, change one change in it. I think that's unlikely. Does the, the uh, I, I guess you can't speak for all the Republicans off the top of your head, but uh, would the would you be supportive of a last in first out uh, legislation in, in concept? Well, my my position on that is I want the best teachers to stay and the bad teachers out. So I don't believe in any formula where you preserve a teacher simply because the teacher's there a certain period of time. Uh, how we phrase that last in, first out, you know, is not how I look at it. I look at it. I want. I don't want to keep somebody simply because they've been a long uh, there a long time and a new teacher leaves and that's a great teacher simply because of the length of time someone's been there. I want quality teachers the same way we have people in business. You gotta you gotta be quality, otherwise you don't make it in in uh, the private sector, and it's the same thing in the public sector. Um, my conversations with members of the teachers union. Uh, just for our listeners, we're speaking with Assemblyman John Bramnett, the Republican leader in the Assembly. If you want to speak, ask a question of the Assemblyman, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press one, and that will indicate on in our switchboard that you have a question. Um, part of this, the whole process of tenure reform, it was tied to uh, teacher evaluations too. And the governor uh, and the commissioner have moved to tying teacher evaluations to student achievement. Um, and we can argue about how that's measured. Uh, is that the right direction to go into from your perspective to tie it somehow to teacher to student uh, achievement? Sure, as long as the measure, the standard works. And you, know, you don't want to simply look at one uh, factor. When you're talking about uh, success of students, you need to evaluate a teacher in, in some way with respect to success. And that issue is one that has always been complicated, but but one that must must occur. Otherwise, there has to be some correlation, some correlation between effective teachers and successful students. Now, that may be related to uh, testing. It may be related to uh, evaluations uh, by different administrators and how the students are doing, but there has to be some sort of correlation between how kids are doing that and whether the teacher is being successful. Well, that's I guess that's the the product of education is how good the, the students are doing. Sure, uh, I'm not look. I'm not an expert in terms of evaluating teacher performance, but I'm an expert on common sense. And common sense says there has to be a correlation in some way between success of students and and teachers' ability to teach. If there's no correlation whatsoever. We know there's something wrong with the system. Okay, let's uh, switch gears a little bit, um, well, a lot of bit, I guess. School funding. Uh, last uh, spring, uh, the commissioner, uh, you know, provided a funding report, and it was tweaking the the, the current system uh, funding formula a little bit. The Democrats, when they approved the budget, took out some of that language. Where do you think we should be moving in terms of school funding from the, the commissioner? Uh, were you in favor of the commissioner's direction and, I guess, the governor's direction in that regard? Well, here's, here's where the problem is. I think the commissioner is terrific. But once the Supreme Court sets a formula as to money has to go into a district, regardless of success, regardless of efficiencies, and regardless of achievement – you know that's ridiculous. Uh, it's like pumping money into a department in my law office 
and the law of, and that department is losing money and people are ineffective. That's ridiculous. So uh, the Abbott decision uh, of many years ago and the subsequent uh, decisions by the Supreme Court, you know, we need to amend either the Constitution or we may, we need to make significant changes. So if we are going to give aid, there must be some reasonable relationship between the aid and the success of that district, period. Now, uh, and I think there's been a number of proposals out there, but none of them will be successful unless the Supreme Court changes its view. But to dump money in the districts without any correlation between success or what the money is being used for, you know, that's a sad state of affairs in New Jersey. Um, I want to see, I, you know, I want to see results. If I'm, I'm happy, I want to say most taxpayers, most taxpayers, uh, if they feel as if their money is being used wisely and they feel it's efficient, you know, they're, they're not as unhappy as if when they see money going in and, you know, not, not, and not a successful uh, end. Uh, if I was to take the position of, say, uh, an Abbott district um, who's struggling, and they would say, we still need the funds, taking the funds away from us would make things even worse. Um, yeah, do you wait, agree with that? Well, I had a bill. Here's what I agree with I've had a bill for years that you send in what you call SWAT teams unannounced into districts, all districts, Abbott or non Abbott, or whatever we call these districts now. Uh, or into offices and do performance audits, audits, and when I'm talking about surprise uh, visits where you follow around and observe people, okay. And if it comes back that everybody's efficient, everybody's doing a good job, then I'm happy to throw money, good money after bad. But until that occurs. Uh, I'm not going to simply say I support a lump sum of money to a district based on a formula, period. I, you know, that's not the way I've operated my life. It's not the way my father ran his business. It's not the, it just defies common sense to send money. Well, you know, it's going to get worse if we don't send money. I don't know that. I really, I really I have to see exactly where the money's going. And so far, I haven't seen the results. So uh, from your perspective, and I, I think you, you're probably speaking for quite a few, for mo most in your party, it's not just the money being sent to the, some of the, the poorer districts or the underperforming districts. It's that it's not being spent, in your, from your perspective, wisely. No. To be honest with you, you know, I can tell you that that's been my impression over the years from the, uh, from the visits or exams or reviews I've had. And I just, I just don't see the, uh, let's say, the so-called follow-up investigations to determine where the money's going. I can give you specific examples. I'm just, I just don't like any formula that says money goes here based on this formula without regards to success. It doesn't make any sense. It's a formula for disaster, in my judgment, in terms of uh, taxpayer over-expenditure. Uh, when the commissioner was, tweet, was tweaking the, the funding formula, it did seem to uh, put more money out to more districts that have not been receiving as much funds as they had in the past. Uh, do you think and some districts are under? I agree with. You know, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I just I agree with that. But he's still working within the Supreme Court framework, and until you change that framework and your hands are tied behind your back, you can't make the kind of decisions. You can, as you said, tweak it a bit to try to change it, but it's still not efficient. So you still work within the framework that you think is flawed. I I, I don't want the court determining 
uh, formulas as to where money goes. The court's not following up. The court doesn't send people into the district to determine how successful they are and where the money's going. They're saying, oh, this is the formula. Uh, well, you know, if it works, it works. But w what arm of the court is determining whether that money is being used wisely? They're not. Hmm. Do you think there's a chance that the, the governor uh, later in this school year or next year, or maybe next year, will look at the school funding formula if if and when he has a some Supreme Court nominees? Well, uh, the governor, I think he looks at it, and I think the governor, as well as many people in the legislature, realize that we're still under the court-regulated system. Until the Supreme Court changes or there's a constitutional amendment, you're stuck with a formula that I don't think anyone, Russian anyone, that most people, reasonable people, believe is is an efficient way of distributing money. I think most of the Democrats, though, were supportive, at least for now. They wanted to give the formula a chance. Um, and so they were holding firm, at least for the next year or so. Yeah, well, that, um, I, I can't speak for the Democrats, but I suspect that if you represent a district that gets a lot of money uh, as a result of a kind of a post-Abbott uh, world, they would like to continue to have the money going to the district. I mean, that, okay. you know, I don't think you know that makes sense to me politically. It just doesn't make any sense to me uh, logically as a taxpayer. All right, moving on to a, a you know, one of the things is we uh, are trying to improve uh, in these underperforming uh, districts uh, or districts that are struggling. If it's not money, we have. People are looking at other areas because I, I guess the consensus, at least from some people and many from your party, is that we put the money in there, but money has shown not to be the answer. Uh, one of the things is uh, choice. Uh, where do you stand on the Opportunity Scholarship Act? Yeah, I'm a co-prime sponsor of that, and what we want to do is test out some other ways of educating students and see. You know, some people say you know it simply doesn't work, and you know they feel as if. You know, the public school system should have uh, full control of all students in the state. I'm from uh, the school that if things, uh, if we have failing schools, let's try some alternatives and see how that works. And I think Opportunity Scholarship Act is a beginning, kind of an experimental way to see how that works. Those who think it, it doesn't work, well, if we pass it, give it a shot in the, in the limited approach that it actually has, uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, competition is not a bad thing, and I, I have heard the arguments against it, but I'll tell you, I've been around for a while, and competition is uh, can motivate a lot of people. <laughs> uh, you know, you start, you start looking at a school across the street, hmm, you know, maybe we'll try that, and hey, let's try that. And, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, competition is pretty good. Uh, for those listening, the Opportunity Scholarship Act, it, it was a pilot. Your proposed bill uh, exactly. is a pilot. It's basically a pilot with uh, you know limited the districts and limited opportunities. And I you know, we, and I, you know, just so you know, I'm a graduate of a Plainfield High School in the Plainfield school system, uh, which is an Abbott uh, district. And I've got some you know on the ground experience in terms of you know I, I, I you know I'm not a private school kid, so you know I you know I've got some experience in this area. As a, this is a practical you know. It's a practical person to graduate, so I get it a little bit. I, I guess the, the the issues that I've heard from some of the the opponents of it, and I'm not sure where it seems like it gets close every year, but it never seems to uh, get all the way. Um, 
and I'm not sure if it's ever was it posted in the, the assembly. Uh, is this one of the bills? The opportunity uh, Scott's rap posted in the assembly. I mean, for a vote? No, it has no. not. I don't believe the speaker has has agreed to post it. Yes. Okay. That was my understanding too. That she has not been a supporter. She has not posted it, and I don't think she's agreed to post it. That's why I wanted to be clear. Obviously, okay. it hasn't been voted on when we say post for those people in your audience, and she hasn't agreed to put it up for a vote. And that's what we mean by posting it. Okay. Um, speaking of that bill, though, some of the, uh, the opposition was that it went to uh, some of the funds went to students already in, at least the last version I saw already in uh, private schools. Uh, was that still in the last proposal that you had? I know there has been discussions on this bill numerous times. Well, I don't recall that change. I do recall that you know it's a voucher-type program for uh, students for some options outside the public school system, but uh, I don't recall that change uh, in, the, in the bill. I, you know, I know I've been in front of me, but I'll sure, certainly look at it. We can talk okay. later about that. Um, and staying on the thing of choice, um, charter schools have been like uh, probably uh, front and center on a lot of uh, public sentiment and a lot of uh, public dispute in a lot of communities. Uh, charter schools, since they were proposed 16 years ago, have changed quite a bit, and the technology has changed. There's a couple things. What are your views on the virtual uh, charter school or virtual schools of any sort? Is that something that the legislature might want to create rules for before we move forward, or let the Department of Ed create those rules? Well, if you're talking about virtual, meaning you're not in the classroom, you're taking right. your course on computer, uh, my initial reaction to that is I'm not a big fan. I'm having to be a big fan of people interacting with people, being in a classroom with other students. I think you learn as much from being in the classroom with other students socially. How you interact with other people is I'm a big fan of these interpersonal skills where they're really important in today's society and we're losing those in some way or there's been allegations because of the Internet and people not doing face-to-face -face, uh, discussions. So on first blush, uh, you know, it's not something I'm uh, supportive of. I surely would listen as we evolve. I mean, who would have ever thought we got to this uh, this area in terms of uh, the Internet and computers? So I never know what's down the road, but my initial reaction is, and I want people in the room with the teacher or in the room with other students, and that's important to me, at least as of now. So is that something that maybe the legislature in a bipartisan fashion should take a look at is virtual schools get a consensus from both? I, I don't think it's a political party issue, in my view, uh, to discuss where we should go as a state with virtual schools. Should we move slowly? Should we move fast? Should we try pilots? Uh, you know, I don't know because uh, I haven't had a lot of discussions in my caucus. I don't remember one on virtual schools. Uh, my, my my gut is that I'm not. Sure, uh, no one's raised it in my caucus. Uh, there's been no discussion okay. on the floor of the legislature. If that comes up, uh, you know, as I said, I'd listen to the arguments. But you know, I like humans speaking to humans. <laughs> um, well. Uh, there's a couple other issues with uh, charter schools that have been uh, debated. Uh, in some, they use the term boutique. I'm not sure uh, for those charter schools that are opening in suburban districts. Uh, some there are many citizens and some school boards, some council members uh, who would prefer that they have a say in where a charter school opens in their community. Uh, where do you stand on that? Well. 
once again, if we're letting the public officials totally control whether it be something that competes with the public schools, it's probably unlikely that the local officials are going to support something outside of you know their domain. Even because, of course, whether it be school board members or council people, uh, that's their domain. They, they control it. Uh, I think once again we we should in, in a suburban district we have really solid schools where you know the achievements done really well. It's probably unlikely that the state's going to impose um, experimental charter schools. Most of the charter school discussion is to compete or be an alternative to failing schools. So my general theory is and my concept is that if a school is not failing, that I probably don't need an experimental school. Uh, you know, there could be an exception to that, and if there was an exception, I can understand why the governor and the state might have to do it. I don't see a lot of that going on. There's been discussions of that, and you know, there's been a reaction to that, but I don't think there's been a lot of actually uh, new experimental or charter schools in districts where there's been success. There, there, there have been some that have been proposed. Um, well, religious. Sometimes you might see a religious school uh, that that may be something that might be authorized. But uh, in my district right now, and I don't know of uh, of any, so I haven't had that specific on the ground debate or fight. Uh, I know there may be some in other districts, but I'm not I'm not that familiar with those districts and those let's say religious schools that are that have been deemed to be uh, charter schools. Or experimental schools. I don't think the the legislature, I mean the, the commissioner or the, or the Department of Ed in the last couple of years has approved to maybe one in a suburban uh, area, uh, but they can't stop them from being proposed. Some of the parents and that and some of the communities in there would like to have the at least have the citizens vote, not just not the school board or the, the municipality, but the the community vote. Uh, because uh, I guess they see it as opening an, almost a second school district, and it might be not not a good use of the property tax funds. Well, that's a fair argument. I just don't think we're going in that direction, so I don't think we have to worry about having a lot of votes and a lot of discussion. I just don't think that's the direction of the Department of Education, nor the governor, nor the uh, majority of legislators. Uh, successful schools are probably going to continue to be successful schools without intervention from the state. We're speaking with Assemblyman John Bramnick. Uh, if you want to ask him a question, uh, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press one, and now let us know on our switchboard that you're you have a question. Um, uh, staying with uh, charter schools uh, a little bit. Uh, your consensus, and I think you're right. I believe the governor has said that, and the commissioner has, at least his words and his actions seem to be that he only supports them in areas where uh, the district is struggling, so that those parents at least have a choice, and it might be a way to help improve education. Um, when we started with charter schools, though, like 16 years ago, it was a different era. Uh, we didn't even talk about virtual schools at the time. Should we look at how we monitor charter schools? Uh, and actually how we uh, start them up. Well, of course. I mean, that's always uh, changing. That, that's a fluid situation. Uh, monitoring charter schools, making sure they work, making sure they're successful, making sure they're not wasting money without any doubt. As, as uh, things change, the government needs to monitor charter schools just like they monitor public schools. Without any doubt, there shouldn't be any less, lesser standard. Uh, it should be the same standard. 
Okay. Um, moving on to a, a, another topic. You know, I wanted to go back. Well, I'll, I'll go back to that later on. Um, as you look forward into this session that's opening up, is there any educational issues that you see that will be discussed more than others? So I think uh, what's left on the table or, or Opportunity Scholarship Act issues as to fair funding. Uh, how Once again, there will be continued discussion as to distribution of uh, state funds towards schools. Uh, I think the heavy lifting as to teacher tenure has been um, uh, say addressed. So I'm not sure the lead issue going into the legislature uh, is going to be any of those issues. But that, that will, since most of the money, most of the taxpayer money in this state goes into education. That will always be on the front burner of the legislature because without monitoring and closely scrutinizing and watching education funding and always being concerned, you know, whether, and once again, we, we want successful students. We have one of the best education systems in the country. But we always have to be careful because it's also a source of um, uh, of, of attacks, which is significant. I mean, that's where most of the money goes. So we're always going to be looking at that. Yes, and uh, but once again, we're still within that. Going back to your framework of the, the the school funding formula we have now, and my feeling is the governor would like to change that framework. Is there a chance that he would move towards changing that framework if he can, can, can get some Supreme Court nominees in? Well, I'm not sure we want to. I assume that if there are Supreme Court nominees, uh, they will make a decision based on, you know, their own position and not necessarily what the governor wants. But I would guess that new Supreme Court justices are probably more like-minded with this governor than past governors. So if there were new Supreme Court justices, I'm assuming that uh, it would it would alter uh, you know, the, the the decision in, in the Abbott and post-Abbott decisions, I, I, no one knows that for sure. You know, you put someone on the Supreme Court, they're, they're there for seven years uh, before they come up for tenure. So, I mean, you saw that with uh, the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and decision in, uh, you know, with Obamacare. So you never know where a Supreme Court justice may end up regardless of, and, I, and I'm convinced that during the interview process that there are no uh, you know, litmus tests, there are no requirements. They just look for really, you know, smart people who have, you know, let's say, a very good background in the law. So if that, if that does, if that is proposed, it's probably a long way down the road because we'd have to have a change in the Supreme Court and then pass a law and you have to get the other yeah, party well, to well, support it, too. Well, you have to pass a law. You may have a challenge to the present system or the present, you know, someone mm-hmm. could challenge distribution of uh, education funds, and the Supreme Court could address that issue without new legislation. Oh, okay. I had it's, just like any, you know, it's like anything else. You, you have a new case comes up, someone brings a lawsuit, goes to the Supreme Court on you know, fair funding or education funding. could be challenged without new legislation. It could be an re- interpretation of pre-existing. You know, well, actually, it was a constitutional decision by the Supreme Court. So the Constitution, as they say, is an evolving document. I'm assuming that new justices may may interpret this involving evolving document differently. And if I heard your answer right on the, some of the issues that are coming forward, tenure reform we've done, and you're probably not going to go back. We're not going to go back, though. You support lasting uh, uh, reform to t- t- 
teacher seniority because you want the best teachers in. You don't think the Democrats will probably be bringing that one back up since it was dropped from last session. Is that correct? Oh, no, that's correct. I mean, that's negotiated, uh, done, over, bills done. Uh, I think it would be a while before somebody goes back to tenure or last in, first out. Um, I just want to go back to your position as a uh, assembly leader for the Republicans. Um, in that position, uh, you took over when uh, you were the second in command when the assemblyman uh, Alex DeCroach passed away. Did working with him in that first uh, for a couple of years really help you this year? Oh, without a doubt. Experience, and my dad used to say, man, you can't you can't buy experience. And when you're with Alex uh, for years and you've been in the legislature nine years and you've moved up in leadership and you, I work with Alex every day, spoke to him, you know, almost every day. We traveled constantly. Uh, there's nothing like experience. Uh, it's, and you know it from anything you've ever done. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I cannot overstate the importance of being there and watching everything go on. The only difference is I used to be able to blame Alex. Oh, I can say, well, okay. look, I wanted to do it, but Alex didn't. Uh, and now, now Dave Ribel is my number two guy. He said, well, you know, Brandick did it. <laughs> so it did give me a really nice number two is really good. You can always blame number one, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but now we have to blame uh, you. Exactly. Now, hey, now when people get mad, I can't blame anybody. <laughs> Which I don't. I don't mind making the decisions. As I said, the experience is just. I mean, that experience is invaluable. Uh, Amory, uh, we have a question from the chat room. Yes, that's right, Ray. Uh, on the um, the question is property tax question. Why is the property tax allowed to be implemented retroactively? The tax rate is established in July, retroactive to January. So when there is an increase in budgets or a decrease in Rateables, the impact on residents is mag- magnified. Okay. Uh, let okay. me just make sure I understand exactly what Yeah, that I want to make sure that too. <laughs> uh, okay. You, you, let's try to define what that person is asking. Uh, read, read it back one more time so I make sure I get the gist of that question. Absolutely. Why is the property tax allowed to be implemented retroactively? Oh, that's a timing question. Okay. Keep going, Emory. Okay. The tax rate is established in July retroactive to January. Oh, oh, okay. 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 Oh, I see. What what, what you're saying is a council gets together, let's say, in June, and they have a – that's the fiscal calendar year. They then initiate a budget, and then – uh, the property tax is retroactive because of when they set set the budget uh, in this specific town or uh, community, correct? I think that's what he's saying, or she, because, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, so what you're saying is, and that's what happens, like in the, I live in Westfield, Westfield would enact, they, they what they do is they set forth a temporary budget for the first four or five months, and then they go through the budget process, and then in June, for example, they set forth uh, the final budget. Well, when they do that, they only guessed, guesstimated the first four or five months. It was a temporary allotment that's done each month by the council in most towns. And then the, the actual amount is set. I guess what you could do is you could have budget hearings in the end of the year, uh, not be on, this, be on the calendar year versus the fiscal year. And I think some communities uh, 
Or, yeah, not many, though. I'm not many, but in, what the question makes a lot of sense. Uh, why don't you set the budget in, let's say, November, December for the calendar year, and then it, then you don't have a retroactive budget increase? It's a legitimate concern. Um, I guess the inertia of government was it's something that communities have done, and then they'd have to just reset the budget for us. Probably a good idea. It's something surely that uh, – you know, we, you know, I, you know, I have to really look at it because it hasn't been brought up very often. Though, yeah, so, uh, it's up to the town. You know, the town can change it. They can go to a calendar year. So, it, before you ask me about whether people can vote on uh, on schools, on on, on um, uh, experimental or charter schools, they they could go to their community and say, "Let's change our budget process." Yes, they could change their budget calendar, I, and I'm trying to remember, I think, and this is not a part of education, but uh, there's a cost to changing the budget cycle. That is why most of the communities, are, the fiscal year is different than the state's fiscal year, and that causes a problem. Um, yeah, so whoever has a question should really – I think communities, and it's inertia. People get together with the front of their legislative bodies, hey, let's fix this so we don't have retroactive uh, tax uh, situation. Yes, it would be easier to plan. You're not guessing that first three or four months. Um, okay, thank you. Um, all right, that, that was actually. Hey, you got some very good people asking questions. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I Normally, I say, "What's your something? favorite? What's your favorite color?" or something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, well, that's we're kind of coming to the end of our uh, our session here. Uh, any final thoughts on? Um, have you? Dealt with board members. Uh, I, I know I've seen you at some events with a lot of board members, a lot of educators. Uh, what should board members be doing in, in this upcoming year? Well, I'm not going to second guess. Uh, what a, I think the Board of Education is the toughest job in the state, and here's why. It's very simple. I have sat on this. I've been a city councilman for many years, a councilman in the city of Plainfield. When people come before the rail or they contact Board of Education members, it is personal. It's emotional. It involves their kids. And Board of Education people are not paid, okay, so they get nothing, but they get the uh, results of people who this is about supporting their children's education. There is nothing more personal than your child's education. So what can they do? As long as they keep doing the job and running for reelection and working, God bless them, because it is – I can't think of a job that's tougher than I, You know, as a city councilman or legislator, most of the issues – I mean, they're personal, but they're not, they're not necessary about your kids. You know, and I can imagine what goes on because I've seen it. You know, I want to be in this school. I want this teacher. I mean, this, this is your kid. So, look, whatever, whatever they're doing, they, they deserve the highest praise because it's a tough job. Yeah, and you're dealing with – in a lot of communities with – Property taxes and people's kids, and it, those are they, they're personal. <laughs> uh, well, kids, I like man, you, I mean, if your kid, you got a, you're a child who's eight, nine, seven. I mean, this is the love of your life. This is it, and you're going to the board of ed. You say, I want this done. This is not somebody building a deck next door to you, or um, an issue, even a tax issue. This is your kid. So, I think board of education. Members should be praised at all times for taking on that job. Okay, I'm going to become. I, I want to get one last. And it's not something that happened this year, but it did happen over a year ago. And I haven't we haven't talked to you about this, but um, we did pen. You did pass in bipartisan 
not many Democrats, but enough, uh, pension and uh, health benefit reform. Why do we think that is needed, and it, will that help the state in the long run? They couldn't afford it. <laughs> you know, what's happened over the years is the amount of revenue that came into the state began to shrink. And as a result of the economy, the national economy, the state economy, that's number one. Uh, number two, the benefits that were provided uh, at some point. We, we, I mean, if, let's put it this way. If there was some windfall that we were at tremendous surpluses and money was falling from trees, uh, no one uh, probably would have minded that uh, someone got full health benefits without paying anything for life and through retirement. Uh, at some point, we just simply couldn't afford it. Not only that, we had such a deficit in our pension funds that if we had not done this, and the actuary told you, this was going to crash. Now, how do you tell somebody, a retired school teacher, I know retired school teachers in their 90s, okay, uh, what do you tell them? Well, I didn't do anything, and therefore you're not getting any money, or you're getting one half of what you're getting. Uh, you had to do something. It was collapsing. I mean, as I said, if there was plenty of money, and we would have probably not addressed the issue, but there wasn't. So the actuary told you, you're going out of business, buddy. Would you give uh, Speaker Oliver um, praise on that one? Uh, because oh, she actually, when you know, she took some hits from her own constituency, her own party. Look, I give her praise on posting a number of issues that uh, arguably were tough for her, and I'm sure she got incredible uh, pressure, arbitration reform, mm -hmm. uh, you know, property tax caps, this, uh, you know, obviously pension health reform, tenure reform. I mean, there's no question. I mean, I, as I said, we may disagree on some things, but I give her credit when credit's due. All right. We have a question from one of our callers. Uh, I'll just uh, – caller, uh, you're on the the air? Oh, Good Fran? morning. Yes. Good yeah, morning. Thanks. That's a question. We only have a few minutes, so uh, make a brief question. Okay. It's a question regarding the tenure reform legislation. Where is the funding? Where's the to funding implement. for it? Well, yes, my, to implement well, these I, changes. It, well, I think it actually saves money. Uh, we're, we're talking about, uh, for example, now cases would go to arbitration as opposed to the court system. When it went to the court system, you're talking about incredible, incredible. Now it's going to arbitration. So I don't see any, I just don't see how this new system costs more. Uh, it seems to me that it's streamlined, and uh, even if you have a bad teacher and you know they, they fail to meet all the requirements under the law, uh, you know the system before cost incredible amount, incredible amount of money uh, to uh, to pr prosecute those cases. And they had a, every school system had to hire a lawyer to handle an, an incredibly long piece of litigation. So, um, so I'm not, I'm not sure. I can't see how it costs more. Fran, uh, are you saying that, like in professional development funds to, for the training of principals and, and administrators? I that's part of it. The um, expanded evaluation process. Um, yes, absolutely. Okay, well, the evaluation process. In tenure charges, well, I'm talking about what everything that has to come before you would get to the tenure charge process. Fran, I'm going to put you on hold because we only have a short time, but. Uh, Assembly, could you answer sure. question? Sure. Uh, and the question is, the Department of Education is now developing the regulations to uh, 
to support, let's say, the evaluations, et cetera. Now, I'm assuming that there's been some evaluations in in process already. Uh, they've, you, know, you don't not evaluate teachers at all today. There is some evaluation process. Uh, but the Department of Education is developing those regulations, and based on the savings of, in my judgment, litigation cost reductions, that uh, will surely be able to fund a system that uh, that evaluates teachers. I, I can't imagine that that's going to be an incredibly costly um, process. Uh, I think so there is some, I, but I'm happy to look at that and determine uh, whether or not it is a cost. I, it, it hasn't been raised uh, as a as a an extremely costly change in our system. I think it was it wasn't in the tenure bill, but it was more in the the change as in the evaluation process. There might be a increased cost because you're have an increased administrative time evaluating teachers. But, but right now, but right now, when but you know what? Comes we up can't, tenure, oh, yeah, sorry. We only have 14 seconds. So okay, I well, I think there's a system now to evaluate teachers. I just think maybe expanded somewhat, but not costly. Okay, I'd like to thank you, Samuel Bramick, for joining us, and I thank you, every, the callers and everyone for listening. Uh, thank you, Samuel. Great, thanks for having me. Right, okay, bye.